Hello and welcome to the first episode in a brand new podcast called A Beginner's Guide to the Night Sky with me, McNallu, also known as Andrew. It's been, well, a good number of decades that I've been interested in astronomy and it's been at least two decades that I've been giving lectures in astronomy in a professional capacity. And given that I've done a few other podcasts, I thought it was high time that I did one on my home ground, which is astronomy. So these aren't going to be uh, lectures as, as such, I don't mean them like that, but a personal view on how I see the night sky, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the universe, the whole lot of it. Um, informed, and possibly misinformed, uh, by all the scientific information that we've gleaned about it uh, in the last, oh, I don't know, several hundred years. So let me start, as this is is a personal journey, with my own recollection uh, of first looking at the night sky. It's a rather strange memory. It involves looking up at the stars and also looking up at the same time at snowflakes that were falling down. Now, this is a childhood memory. I can date it to about the years where I was five, six or seven. I can't be precisely sure when it was. And like all memories, it's probably unreliable. Especially in that it's impossible that it was snowing and that I was seeing the stars at the same time. Well, it's nearly impossible. Um, uh, Because if it's snowing, it would be cloudy and you can't see the stars. Now, it is just about possible that there's a gap in the clouds or something like that. But that's not, in fact, what I think happened. I think uh, that associated with this memory, I have a memory of it being a snowy evening, snow had fallen, and I was in the back garden of my parents' second house, which is how I know roughly when this occurred, uh, and I was looking up at the sky because I discovered that if I reached up and and grabbed this washing line that was strung between two posts, and if I grabbed it and, and released it and it pinged up into the air, then I would get a shower of little snowflakes. And therefore, I could watch it snow, lit by the moonlight, whilst the stars were in the background. This is quite a vivid memory that I have. Now, there's uh, more than just a childhood memory there. I think it's the first valuable uh, point that you can make about the night sky is that we don't really look up. Uh, Most of us um, don't look up. Uh, uh, or at best we look up very rarely and in fact our brains are not really geared to look at the night sky and it's confusing for us in a number of ways and we can illustrate that with a a simple uh, illusion if you look at the rising moon and I'm looking out the window right now and the sun has just set uh, it's uh, 20th of November um, where I am in the northern hemisphere Glasgow in Scotland United Kingdom sun has just set it's what, I don't know, 25 to 5 Greenwich Mean Time, Universal Time. The moon is just rising, and while it's sitting there on the horizon, it appears larger than it normally does. Specifically, it appears larger than it does when the moon is higher uh, above the horizon. So if I come back in a few hours' time, I'll be quite satisfied that the moon is now at pretty much normal size again. 
but for some reason the moon appears to be larger when it's uh, near the horizon. Now you might be tempted to conclude that this is an atmospheric effect, and you could test this by taking a series of photographs of the moon and then superimposing them, which is a trivial task using modern software, and what you would find is that you could draw two neat lines on either side of the moon as it rose up through the sky, and those two lines would not get any closer together or further apart uh, as the night wore on. In other words, the moon isn't any larger or smaller at uh, different heights in the sky. It's, so that would rule out an atmospheric effect. In fact, it's actually a, a sensory effect. It's, it's the brain plus eyes processing the information that makes us think the moon looks larger when it's low. And that's a symptom of the fact that our brain is really geared up for terrestrial viewing and not for staring up into the sky. So when with our eyes we look up into the sky, we see the night sky, but we have no intuitive idea what distances things are at. So for example, if I were to hold my fist up uh, next to a streetlight, and next to the streetlight was the moon, and next to the moon was Jupiter, and next to Jupiter was a bright star like Aldebaran, then all of these things could be, in some senses, close to each other as my eye saw them, as I viewed it, maybe within a few degrees of each other, in fact. But the objects involved are at quite different distances. Uh, and indeed, that is the case in astronomy. And we really have no intuitive way of telling, when we're just looking at the sky, th what distance an object is. All our usual cues that we use in everyday life the size of a known object, the greying out effect of the atmosphere, the fact that we have binocular vision, two eyes, that's of no use to us at all when we're looking at astronomical objects. And in fact, when we look up at the sky, we see groups of stars there, the constellations. And the constellations are groups of stars that just happen to be near each other in the sky and, and form some kind of shape. The stars in the constellations are in fact nowhere near each other. And it's interesting that uh, that throughout history, that different peoples on the earth, different civilizations, different tribes, dating back thousands of years, have looked up at some parts of the skies, and they've interpreted the same pattern of stars in much the same way. And the most striking example is of Orion. Now, Orion is a constellation that many people will be familiar with. If not, just type Orion in and you'll f into a search engine and you'll soon find find it. Um, but Orion is uh, very noticeably like the figure of a man. Uh, there's shoulders, there's feet, uh, and there's a belt. Okay, you have to use a little bit of imagination. But civilizations at different, par different parts of the Earth looked up and identified Orion with a, a human figure even though those civilizations couldn't have been in cultural contact, let alone any kind of direct contact, uh, up, up to thousands of years ago. And it's worth casting our minds over those stretches of time to try and imagine what the very first humans, as we would know them on the Earth, might have thought of the night sky. So these humans haven't yet got to cave painting, Perhaps they have even got to scratching out shapes with a stick in the sand. If so, 
then the sky is their only picture book, is their only source of shared art. And so it's not too surprising that the night sky um, still has quite a, a, a resonant mythological uh, relevance to our modern society. It has probably since the first humans looked up at it. But uh, it extends just beyond the constellations, of course, because the sky changes. As the Earth turns, giving us day and night, the sun rising and setting, all the stars will rise and set too. So the whole sky looks like it's moving because we're on this revolving globe called the Earth. And if you look at a particular star, you'll notice that it rises earlier from night to night. So if you take a particular star, you'll find that it rises four minutes earlier tomorrow night than it does tonight. Uh, uh, and that, incidentally, is because that the Earth has moved a little bit further around in its orbit. Anyway, that was not known to the first people uh, that looked up at the sky, but they were aware that the sky was changing. And so the picture book, the pictures of joining the dots in the sky that they could talk about and share, or whatever way they could in these early days, uh, was it was a book. It had pages that turned from night to night, but m more obviously from month to month or season to season, however you divided up the year. But not only that, you had objects that moved through the sky. The moon, most obviously, uh, because it's the brightest, would appear in a different patch of the sky night after night. And the planets would also move through those same patches of the sky. This band of stars or constellations that encircle the Earth through which the moon, the planets and the sun move, we call the zodiac. And there's 12 such constellations, and you'd be familiar with most of their names. Uh, Taurus, Pisces, Aries, Capricornus, Sagittarius, I could go on. But they should be uh, fairly familiar to you when I say them. And they're all important because objects of our solar system pass through these. But to the early people on the Earth, these were far more significant than just objects in our solar system. We didn't know about them as being that, of course. They interpret them as being gods or deities that could walk amongst the stars, that had the freedom to walk amongst the stars. So you have, for example, Mars being tinged red, quite obviously in the sky. Mars is identified as a god of war. Ares, in other mythologies. Venus, a bright and beautiful object never far from the sun in the evening or the morning sky goddess of beauty, Venus, Aphrodite. Closest to the sun, fleeting and hard to see but fast moving, the planet Mercury, also known as Hermes. And the slow moving, majestic but very bright object that can be at any position in the sky with respect to the sun, not constrained by the bright sun, Jupiter, the king of the gods, also known as Zeus. And so these planets animate the sky um, and have uh, populate the storybook with characters uh, for the, the ancient people upon this earth. Now, these days we don't believe uh, in mythology. Uh, well, most of us don't believe in that mythology. We might believe in other mythology and I personally don't believe in any particular mythology. Um, and some of these myths that are associated with stars seem somewhat ridiculous now. Did the Egyptians really identify 
the, the Great Bear, Ursa Major, known as the Big Dipper, on one side of the Atlantic, but where I am, most commonly known as the Plough. Did the Egyptians really look at that and see an elephant with a crocodile's head and a man standing in its back? What were they on? So, the pictures in the sky are certainly subjective uh, to us, but as I'm tempted to laugh at uh, some of these old mythologies, and it seems incredible to me that astrology, as it's applied in popular culture just now, could have any credence, uh, I can't dismiss their importance and significance to science in history, because they are artefacts from the earliest stages of the scientific process. And the scientific process, in some sense, is being a refined version of the way humans think anyway. Um, the first part of the scientific process is just noticing that there's something interesting there. And then you collect observations. You notice which constellations, say, the moon passes through. And then you uh, start to classify them. You start to give the constellations names. Uh, and you start to record how many days it takes for Jupiter to move from one point in the sky to another, and and so forth. And slowly you build up theories, which you then go back and test against your observations. And of course it took us, from the first humans looking up at the stars and seeing those pictures, it took us millennia to figure out there was a pattern to these motions, uh, and then it's only in the last few hundred years that we developed any kind of mathematical scientific theory to describe them. But nevertheless, uh, astrology uh, and just being interested in the stars, for whatever reason, does sit at the base of modern science. And although I wouldn't like to think of modern science being anything like astrology, perhaps one day the cornerstones of uh, our modern scientific understanding, such as relativity, uh, quantum mechanics, both very important in the subject of astronomy now, or should I say astrophysics now, perhaps in thousands of years' time, maybe millions of years' time, humans will look back at, on those as quaint, rather, well, pseudo-scientific ideas that were quite far away from the reality of the universe, as we may view astrology today. Well, there's a lot more I could say about the various things I've touched on. Uh, in particular, uh, distance it bears a lot more discussion. Um, I could talk about parallax, and I will talk about parallax, but not in this episode. I want to keep these episodes nice and short. So next time, uh, in episode two of Beginner's Guide to the Night Sky, I'm going to start exploring the constellations and discussing the free and open source software Stellarium and also some apps that you can use on your phone uh, so that you can begin to find your way around the night sky. Well, that's it uh, for this time. Um, please visit the website astro.mcnalu.net uh, and you'll find other episodes of this uh, podcast, show notes, links to other interesting things uh, and also the license uh, under which uh, this podcast is released, which will be some kind of Creative Commons license. Haven't quite decided which one yet, but that will appear on the website. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope to uh, 
talk to you again in episode two. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.